Welcome to Monday Sportif. Follow us on Twitter at at Monday Sportif LDN. Welcome to Monday Sportif, where you can now find this podcast on the Newsly app. Newsly is an audio app for iOS and Android. It picks up web articles about the most trending topics on the web at any given moment and reads them to you in a natural human voice. For the first time in the history of the internet, the entire web becomes listenable. You can browse articles from topics you choose and start playing, stop scrolling, start listening. You can follow any topic as specific as you like, from sports, science, to Bitcoin and the Kardashians. It will find you the latest articles and read them to you. And they have podcasts, Rick. As well, explore trending podcasts from over 50 countries. Our podcast, Monday Sportive Podcast, is there too. That's right. Now, download and use the Newsly app for free uh, following the link www.newsly.me or from the link in the description below. And we have a promo code for one month's free premium subscription. Get on it. Now. Hello, Monday Sportif listeners, and welcome to episode 17 of the Monday Sportif podcast. Now, last week we had a football author on the show, and this week, guess what? Surprise, surprise, we have another football author on the, sh- on the show in the form of Danny Lewis. Now, Danny Lewis, welcome to the Monday Sportif podcast. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, it's absolute pleasure, Danny. Thanks, thanks for coming on. Um, we're on this podcast this week. We're here to speak about Danny's brand new book, When Asia Welcomed the World Cup, and closely in detail, the 2002 World Cup Revisited. Uh, it's your new book, Danny, and it's out today, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, so uh, today was the first official day of it being out. Um, I've spent a lot of my morning and early afternoon signing copies and sending them off so um yeah it's all been really exciting there was obviously a lot of work put into it and this is my second book now so um yeah I'm just really excited to see how people respond to it and I'm pleased it's out there in the world now so to speak Excellent, Danny. And I mean, I've seen I haven't seen the book in my hands, but I've seen I've seen the the post you put out today of it. And what was it like opening up that cardboard box and seeing that vibrant front cover? Because it really is a great front cover, isn't it? Yeah, it's really um, I absolutely love the cover. Um, I, you know, I had a few conversations with uh, Duncan Olner, who uh, designed it. Yeah. And, you know, I sort of really said people who I wanted on the front. So. For example, I mean, there's Rushdi Rekba on the front, there's David yep. Beckham, then you've got Papa Booba Diop, who um, I I, ha- I had to have on there because obviously, you know, even though in England he's sort of seen as this, you know, sort of fairly average holding midfielder who sort yeah. of did a job, you know, he was actually brilliant at that World Cup and obviously scored some massive goals. And yes, he did. Yeah, so just from the design and... You know, there are other people, like, obviously, I had to have Ronaldo on there. Oh, of course, um, yeah. But, yeah, I'm just really pleased with it. And and uh, this is me being uh, 
sort of this is a, a quiz here. Am I right in saying you've got uh, De Nilsson and Nakata on there in the Japanese shirt as well? Is that right? Um, so I've got Hidden, uh, Nakata on there. Yeah. And then I've got, so it's pretty much all of the South Korea team, like at yep. the time. Yeah. Um, yeah, they were celebrating it. And then there's also Oliver Kahn on there. Yeah, it, I mean, it really is. A, it's, it's a fantastic, vibrant uh, front cover. And it's got all, all the, the sort of stars that sprung up in that 2002 World Cup. The 2002 World Cup. Now, I've got very strange memories of the 2000 World Cup. And the reason why I say that, it was a very bizarre time. I was 18, would you believe? I mean, I've, I, I may have youthful looks, but I, I was 18 in 2002. So for me, it was it was a very poignant world cup in that i was down the pub at 7 a.m so it you know i i don't know what the contrast what was with you danny but uh you know in in england the games were kicking off i believe at 7 a.m and i was you know i was down the pub (laughs) well yeah it was a very different experience for me because i was actually (laughs) six years old (laughs) oh fair play yeah yeah. um i definitely wasn't at the pub but um you know, the motivation behind writing the book is that this was the World Cup that sort of inspired my love of football. Right. Um, you know, I was obviously getting the Match magazine before it. I was yeah. getting all the stickers, you know, all the vibrancy. And, you know, obviously the World Cup is football's biggest spectacle. Yeah. And I'd never properly experienced that before because obviously the one before I would have been two years old and completely oblivious to what was happening um so yeah just you know seeing everything that was going on and you know this Brazilian team and their bright yellow kits it was just all so incredible for me and you know that really sparked the love of football that has obviously continued to this day yeah, fantastic. I mean, it, it's it's a funny one because, you know, the games were kicking off at, I think, you, you'll tell me otherwise, it was like, I'm sure it was 7am or 8am in the morning. And and the pubs had had these special licences um, to, to sort of serve beer. And, you know, we were 18 and, and the novelty of it was great. I mean, we was all having a laugh, having a few pints in the morning watching England play. But, you know, w- when I look back, it was just such a strange feeling to be... Uh, to be drinking at 7am and watching England. But it was, uh, yeah, it, it was a funny competition for that point of view, because, you know, at that age, when you're 18, you're sort of an avid fan. You're, you're so invested in, in football and, you know, watching England play. And it was, uh, you know, when you talk about Brazil, we, we, me and my friends, we all admired the Brazilians because, you know, Ronaldo and Rivaldo was, you know, top, top of his game at the time, wasn't he? Mm. So it, it it was a funny one. Brazil were like the enemy because we, we we really had this sort of eighteen year old verve that we could win it, you know. Yeah, I mean, I remember obviously, you know, I was quite naive at the time, and you know, when you had the little because I remember when England played, um, they played during the week one time, and they sort of willed this telly in so that we could watch the game <laughs> at school. Yeah. Um, and you know, when you see all of the, you know, because. You know, you got to remember that before Brazil, we beat Denmark 3 yeah. 0 comfortably. We basically scored three goals early and then just sort of cruised through the second half. Yeah. So, me seeing that as a young kid, I was like, you know, are the, these guys just like completely unstoppable? Are we going to win it? And then obviously, 
what happened happened. So that that was my first real experience of football heartbreak, I'd say. Yeah, uh, yeah and, and like you say, it was a funny one for me as well because um, England obviously didn't make it to the 1994 World Cup. It was my first proper World Cup where I sat down and watched almost every game. And, and, and England weren't there. And it was almost at that age... I, you. you you knew they didn't qualify, but it was just a strange feeling. You know, England weren't in that competition. So France 98, I was a little bit older. So this 2002 World Cup was where it really sort of, it, it was like, uh, it, it was strange that the games were so early, but it was a real, you know, it hit fever. We thought, you know, we all thought that we could potentially win it, you know. Mm. But um, so, I mean, moving on to the actual, um, so the actual book, I mean, what, so what inspired you to sort of um, put pen to paper for this? I mean, obviously you said it was the first one you remember, but is there any particular highlights of this World Cup that you sort of, you can sort of pick out? Um, so I'd, it, talking about the motivation, I'd not long finished writing um, The Bowling's Farewell, which is my first book about yeah. the final game at Upton Park. Yeah. And, um, you know, that was, you know, a really great experience. And so I thought I want to write another book. Mm -hmm. um, and I often, you know, the reason behind the first one was an emotional connection to a game. Yeah. I thought was a tournament that I've got an emotional connection with and it was this one. Yeah. You know, looking at sort of the moments that really stuck out to me, there was obviously the Argentina game and that uh, David Beckham penalty. Yep. Um naturally the final with Ronaldo scoring those two goals um you know there were so many incredible moments I mean Republic of Ireland getting that late equaliser against Germany yeah Portugal in the group stages beating USA um the other way around USA oh yeah USA beating Portugal. yeah yeah um because USA weren't expected to do much at all. Um, and then they got out of the groups and were narrowly beaten 1-0 by Germany um, to a soft free kick as well. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, obviously the first game of the tournament as well, Senegal beating France. I mean, you know, people sort of talk about um, the World Cup and obviously it does have its controversies. And, you know, obviously looking you know, at the time as a six-year-old, you're not really aware of, you know, the intricacies of what's happening. Yeah. You just see these giant killings and all of that sort of stuff. And you think, wow, anything is possible in this sport. And, you know, it was just so inspiring. So I think, you know, the fact that there were so many upsets, obviously with Turkey um, reaching the last four as well. Yeah. Um, as well as South Korea, of course. Um, yeah, it just really made football seem like such an exciting sport to me. And I guess, you know, looking back as I like to think of, think of myself as a seasoned journalist, obviously I've been writing for quite a few years now. Yeah. I was really intrigued to sort of see that tournament through fresh eyes. So that's why... Um, I, I watched every single minute of the tournament back. Wow. Um, Did you really? You watched yeah. every game? Wow, yeah, yeah. And fantastic. It, it was a very time-consuming process. Because yeah. It wasn't just like you watch it all the way through. No. You're, you're stopping and starting to make sure you've got the right player doing this and the right player doing that. And, you know, how did it go off the certain player to go to him or whatever? So, um, so it was a very time-consuming process. But I thought, one... 
you know, I was six at the time. I want to see it through the eyes of a professional journalist rather than a child. Yeah. Um, and two, there were so many controversies that if I was going to be writing about something that could be contested, I wanted it to be my own opinion rather than me doing it based off the opinion of someone else. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So you, you sort of you, you got the sort of feel for the for the competition as opposed to just taking someone's sort of opinion on what they felt it was. Now, just a quick one on that. So it, it was it was played in uh, Japan and South Korea, which is a, like your book suggests. It's the first time that the World Cup's gone to Asia. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's used to being played in Europe and, and South America. So it, it, in, in that respect, it was a bit of a unique World Cup. Did you when you when writing the book, did you get that the sort of vibe of what the World Cup was to be played in Japan and South Korea, if you know what I mean? Yeah, I think um, that. I mean, it's pretty obvious to say, but it came across most when South Korea and Japan were playing. Yeah. I mean, there were times where um, the national anthems were being played for both teams. And, you know, it gave me goosebumps because obviously they were singing it with such passion and there were so many of these fans in the stadium. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I mean, even to a certain extent, I mean, with it being in Asia... um, China as well, they had quite a vocal support from what I watched and what I saw. Um, So, you know, I feel, you know, when it comes to fan culture, uh, Asia is probably one of the continents that are overlooked. You sort of mostly think of South America and Europe, I'd say. But um, it was really cool to sort of see, you know, these Asian supporters really getting behind their teams and you know, really put in their stamp on the tournament because, as you say, this is the first one to have ever been there. Yeah, so yeah. There was a real, a real desire to make sure that, you know, the world saw that these nations could put on brilliant events and really support their teams. And it's, it's true what you say because, you know, it, the, the, the tournament being played in uh, South Korea and Japan, it, it really, it, even to this day with the World, with the world Cup travelling to many different destinations, um it's sort of it's still when you look back at the images and and the kits because Nike had those very strange sort of designed kits. I, I think Nike Vapor made these sort of netted kits that Brazil and South Korea wore, and that they were very vibrant. And the whole tournament, even to this day, has a real unique and sort of joyful vibe to it. And, and you get that sense from the front cover of your book. It sort of it sort of made its way onto the cover as well, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you think that and. You know, there were some really uh, unique kits in that World Cup, I thought. Obviously, you had um, Cameroon, where, so at the Africa Cup of Nations before the World Cup, they'd worn basically a vest top. Yes, um, I remember very well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were going to wear that for the World Cup, but FIFA said you have to have sleeves. Yeah. So what they did is they um, they basically got black sleeves, like, connected to the tops they were going to wear um so <laughs> that became you know obviously fifa were trying to you know stop them having the look they desired but it ended up being a pretty iconic look anyway yeah then one that i personally liked as well was uh slovenia because they had the mountains on the shirt uh, okay yeah yeah, yeah. Pretty cool as well yeah i mean i i, I do remember the kits i mean I, i'm sure england had some sort of a fans reversible kit or or something like that i mean at the time it was when football kits were being sold you know by the bucketfuls in you know sport and sports soccer and sort of 
all JD Sports. You could buy, you know, there was hundreds of these shirts lined up. So we all had one. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was it was a unique tournament. So getting down to the sort of the action, as we say, in terms of the football, you mentioned uh, a few things earlier on when you, your sort of inspirations for the book. And France, they are this massive sort of uh, nation. They've won the World Cup in 1998 in, in fantastic style against Brazil in sort of odd circumstances with Ronaldo. And then they win the 2000 Euro as well, don't they? So France are on, on a real bounce when they come into this competition. And, you know, for me watching it as a, as a fan, you, you, you see Senegal uh, pop up and you're thinking France are going to just absolutely maul them. But it's not the case, is it? Yeah, no, I think, you know, that that coming into it, there was almost a sense of inevitability that France were going to win. Yes. Um, Patrick Vieira even dismissed Senegal, and he has roots in Senegal. Yeah, he um, he told Le Parisien. He basically said, "I really hope an African team makes the quarterfinals. Maybe Cameroon can do it." Right. So, um, so yeah, you know when you when you hear that, it sort of says how little a chance Senegal had, and they actually pretty much all of their players were playing in the French league at the time. Um, yeah most of them not for the biggest clubs. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it says in the book that this is, you know, one of the most special moments for Senegal as a country, not just mm. within football, because, right. you know, you've got the history of it as well with um, France having colonised Senegal and, you know, for them to do it in that, because that was their first ever World Cup game as well. You know, it yeah. wasn't just the first of that World Cup, it was the first ever. And, yeah. um, you know, like France could maybe have the excuse of, you know, they didn't have Zidane for the first two games. But even so, you would have expected them to be fairly comfortable because, you know, Thierry Henry had just been the top scorer in England. Trezeguet had just been the top scorer in Italy. Yeah. And Gibral Cisse, who came off the bench, had been the top scorer in France. So, um so, yeah, that sort of says it all. And uh, it was an incredible shock. And, and that's it, Danny. I mean, you're, you're looking at, you just mentioned those three strikers, Henri, Trezeguet and Cissé, that, that they topped the scoring charts uh, across Europe pretty much. I mean, Henri was doing things in the Premier League that we sort of, you know, football fans didn't know was possible. And for, for him to be in that squad with Vieira, you got Barthez in goal, I think might have been at Manchester United at the time. Um, De Desailly, Marcel Desailly, sort of tipped as probably one of the greatest defenders to ever play the game. You know, you, you've got this real sort of very, very sort of uh, experienced and sort of, what's the best word to use? They're sort of, uh, you know, champions, you know, they're, they're winning stuff in, in, in their sort of leagues. And to lose 1-0 to Senegal was just an absolute shock. But um, yeah, it, it, it was your, your the man you mentioned um, at the beginning of the podcast, who's on the front cover, uh, front cover, is uh, uh Papa Diop, isn't it? Um, he he's, yeah. he he was the goal scorer, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Um, there was a slight slight touch of fortune to the goal because it actually bounced back to him. But he did well because he was on the floor, and he sort of flicked out his left boot at the perfect time. And it obviously went in, and then there were the iconic images of the Senegalese team dancing in the corner, which they did for quite a few of their goals. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, you know, that's 
as I said before, probably one of the biggest moments that Senegal has had, you know, in their football in history and perhaps even their wider history. And that they also um, that they were a bit of a trailblazer. I mean, in in previous World Cups, we'd had Cameroon, who had, who had been quite strong in the nineteen ninety World Cup. You also had in ninety four Nigeria, who had a pretty good competition, if I remember rightly, in the ninety four with JJ Kocha. Um, but Senegal sort of trailblazed. You know, the African teams at the World Cup, you know, can and and will have success in 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 the future. And it, it was a uh, it sort of paved the way for that, really, didn't it? Because after Senegal showed that they could beat France, it sort of other African nations who were at the World Cup sort of believed that they could do it too. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, the other thing as well is when they did get knocked out, it was incredibly close game and incredibly unfortunate because it was a golden goal um, against Turkey. Yeah. And, you know, they'd obviously gone through against Sweden on a golden goal yeah so they sort of had the joy and the cruelty of the golden goal but um you know as you say you know the fact that they were able to do it got people talking about african nations and then obviously ghana had theirs so i feel like you know that sort of period not just 2002 but sort of around it as well uh were really exciting times for african nations at the world cup and you know, there was probably quite a long time where they were pretty disrespected in terms of, you know, their, you know, people question their intelligence or whatever. And they've just completely shown that, you know, they can make their mark at these tournaments and they are to be respected. And, you know, as I say, they, they are good enough to really push and achieve something yeah, indeed, I completely agree. And it was um, so. So with France, before we before we move on to other sort of aspects of the competition, that that they really did bomb out of the competition, didn't they? I mean, they went on to draw nil nil with Uruguay, and then in a sort of a game they had to win, they lost two nil to Denmark without scoring a goal at the competition. I mean, it's just it was really was a a, a real sort of uh, horror show, wasn't it, from the French team? Yeah, I mean, so Zidane did play in that um, in that final game, but for me, the image of him sort of with his legs still strapped up, looking sorry for himself, almost sort of encapsulated France's World Cup. Perfectly yeah. Because, you know, they did spend a lot of time feeling sorry for themselves, <laughs> by the looks of it. Yeah. And um, it was just a completely miserable World Cup for them, and... Obviously, for the wider world, it was pretty difficult to believe um, after, you know, the dominance that they'd had across the world and Europe before that. I mean, I think it goes to show that Zidane, I mean, that they had all these superstars in the squad. But Zidane, when you watch that guy playing midfield, as many people have, he's just a connector to the whole game, isn't he? He's just he's more than a, a skillful player. He just he just ticks everything over doesn't he he's like a sort of Rolls Royce engine just sort of ticking through the pitch and I believe just before this tournament quote me if I'm wrong he scored that volley in the Champions League final against Bayer Leverkusen which is arguably one of the best volleys that's ever been scored in a final I'd say I don't know if you agree but yeah that that is correct that it wasn't long before and um I'll I'll quickly jump to Michael Ballack because um obviously he had his fair share of misery in this World Cup as well, because yeah. he, um, 
he got a yellow card in the semi-final um, that stopped him playing in the final, which obviously they lost. And throughout the season, he'd come second in the Bundesliga, Champions League and the FB Pokal. So, oh, yeah. Um, so yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, to be fair, he was playing for Chelsea at the time, wasn't he? No, he was at... Um, Bayer Leverkusen. Oh, he's a Bayer Leverkusen. Oh, okay, right. Yeah, and he played in the final. Yeah, yeah. And I think soon after that, he went to Chelsea, didn't he? So it was... Yeah, I'm not sure how long after it was, but he obviously did. Yeah. Uh, So, um, the French French bomb out, Zidane, that famous image. There were some um, absolutely remarkable performances in that World Cup. None so more than... South Korea and Turkey, because they, they got into the last four, didn't they? And they really were like quite fantastic at this World Cup, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, so going back to, you know, the six-year-old child watching it, Rushdie Rekba was just mesmerising. Like, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. He was almost like a superhero because he had the black lines drawn on his face. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was just making these miraculous saves and what what is often forgotten because obviously a large part of his legacy is the 2002 world cup yeah he was actually injured for quite a bit of it um he actually went off in the third game because in the second he'd like done something to his leg um and obviously in the third game they were comfortably beating china so the manager was sort of like you know let's give him a rest yeah but for pretty much the whole tournament, you know, he probably wasn't 100%, but he put in these amazing performances well, as well. At the other end, you had Hashan Shash or Hassan Sass or however you say it. Oh, yes, I do remember um, Hassan Sass, yeah. But, you know, he scored some brilliant goals and put in some brilliant performances as well. And then, obviously, South Korea, um, they'd never made it out of the tour, uh, out of the group stages, neither had Turkey. Yeah. Um, and you know there there was controversy around it, and you know there there are a whole host of talking points around South Korea's route to where they got. But um, you know they did also play some brilliant football at times, and you know there were there were some decisions that were pretty poor. But you know I even after watching it, you know. The, ho- the whole of it back, even I struggled to sort of put my finger on whether it was any sort of corruption or whether it was just referees who were out of their depth because yeah. I do think there were a few of those at that World Cup. It's, it's interesting you say that, actually, Danny, because I wasn't going to bring it up, but there's, there is there is a little bit of a sort of urban sort of conspiracy myth that there was some sort of... Uh, I don't know, sort of match fixing or, you know, conspiracy theories about refereeing decisions. I mean, having watched back the whole World Cup, I mean, you've just met, alluded to it there. You sort of you sort of feel it's more bad refereeing. But, you know, do you would you add fuel to the flames of it being conspiracy theories and maybe sort of, um, I don't know, some sort of uh, game swinging or not? Or, or do, do you sort of think that's rubbish or how do you feel on that? Um, well, I I will say that, you know, some of them do look a bit dodgy purely because they're so bad. Like, for <laughs> example, like the um, Yakin one. So basically, um, 
it had gone to extra time between South Korea and Spain. Yakin gets to the byline. It's yeah. nowhere near going out. He dinks the ball to the back post and Morientes heads it in. Right. And uh, obviously that would have been the golden goal. Yeah. But they say that the ball had gone out, even though it blatantly hadn't. Um, so Interesting. You know, South Korea would have been out. Um, but then again, you know, in the Germany game, um, you know, Ramelov, uh, the he was playing at centre back for Germany. Yeah. Um, you know, he got a couple away with a couple, and there was one where a South Korean would have been running through on goal, but um, they called offside when he wasn't offside. So, you know, if you were to play into the conspiracy theory side of it, you know, someone could say, oh, you know, they'd got to that point and maybe people were cottoning on that there have been some dodgy decisions made to maybe do that to go against it. But, um, you know, you can't dispute that they were helped by a couple of dodgy decisions on the way. There we go. So but there were, you know, in games that weren't including any of the hosts, you know, there were some pretty poor calls in a few of those as well. So that's why I say, you know, there's definitely a chance that it's just referees out of their depth and, you know, not really able to keep up with play or whatever. Yeah. So there we go. Monday sportive listeners. Uh, if, if you know better or you've seen some of these, these particular decisions, let us know. And we'll, uh, we'll delve a little bit deeper, but it was uh, nonetheless, uh, South Korea make it through the group stages as do uh, Japan. And um, they, they face Italy. And, and in that game, there was a few dodgy decisions as well, wasn't there? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I think this game stands out, doesn't it? I mean, it, it was the, the Italians obviously were very aggrieved by this match, weren't they? Yeah, and to be honest, rightly so. Um, you know, Totti was sent off, uh, given a second yellow for what the referee called a dive, but it really should have been a penalty. Mm. Um, but one of the worst ones for me was that, um, I think it was. Del Piero, who was elbowed in the face, and right. it, sh- it should have been a red because the player actually looks at him and then throws the elbow. Um, <laughs> and the worst bit for the Italians was that South Korea ran up like, to do a counter, and then yeah. one of their players made a foul and got a yellow. And they were like, How can you give a yellow for that when our teammates just been elbowed straight in the nose? And, you know, there's been absolutely nothing given. So, yeah, you know, I've seen some articles where they sort of analyse every half-dodgy decision that was made in that game. And, you know, they've they've got quite the tally. (laughs) Yeah. So, what what I... um... Yeah, so South Korea progress. What what I want to do, just because it's uh, quite good fun, is, is look at... England at this World Cup because it is what I remember the most, really, apart from obviously the beers I was drinking. Um, but you know, it's Beckham um, had that awful time in the 1998 World Cup where he kicked out at Simeone and got sent off, yeah. you know. Uh, and it was that at that stage, you know, watching England play, you start realizing that we've just got bad luck. So we were all hoping that this, this tournament was going to change, and we, we all believed our time was coming when England beat Argentina and Beckham, David Beckham took revenge with scoring that, scoring that penalty. And it was just, 
it was fever pitch time in 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 the UK because we we all sort of suddenly believed you know you beat Argentina this this has got to be us now you know hmm. yeah I mean so in the book I sort of said from what it felt like for me watching it obviously he'd scored that incredible free kick against Greece just to get um, yeah. England to the World Cup it sort of felt almost like that was him repaying the country. And then that moment against Argentina, it almost felt as if that was for him as much as anybody else. Yeah, yeah. um, You know, I've sort of half got goosebumps now just thinking about the moment, but the emphatic celebrations and, you know, that that game in general, that was obviously there's bias involved. But from a personal point of view, that was my favourite one to cover because the atmosphere was sensational in the stadium from what I could see. Yeah. Um, And England just fought incredibly throughout that whole game and you know you could tell from the first like 30 odd seconds it was going to be a battle because Batistuta had already taken out like two of our defenders um so yeah it was just an incredible performance to watch back and yeah you know you can just sort of imagine you know with what you're saying being in the pub and yeah all, all the beers sort of flowing and how it must have been such an incredible atmosphere and such an incredible occasion to watch. Yeah, it was good. It was, um, I mean, I, I sort of struggled to remember much about it. I, the, the, the game I remember the most, and I, and I remember it being what one of those first real feelings of disappointment, and we'll, we'll, we'll may as well come on to it now, is, is, is the Brazil game. I mean... We went one nil up. Michael Owen put England with a fantastic finish, mm. and and it was just like this is it. We're going to beat Brazil, and we're going to win the World Cup. Honestly, it felt like that. It might have been the Budweisers talk, like you know, sort of talking, but it was just we we believed when Owen put that ball in the back of the net. It, you know, this could happen. Yeah, I mean, they were moments away from getting into half time one nil up. You know, the Rivaldo goal. So, Brazil basically burst down the middle. Ronaldinho sort of uh, draws the defenders in and then plays it to Rivaldo, who was never going to miss. No, yeah, and, that's true. You know, you, you do sort of, you know, with England, there have been so many of these what-if moments. And I think that definitely is one of them because I feel like that really knocked the stuffing out of the team. And Gareth Southgate, who was there, he wasn't playing in the game, but he was there. He sort of said at the time, um, you know, he was pretty disappointed with um, the response from Sven Goran Eriksson. You know, he was really looking for some motivation for the team and yeah, it didn't really come from the manager. And then obviously it wasn't that long after halftime that Ronaldinho scored the free kick. So, you know, that period in the middle, you know, obviously if that hadn't happened, you do sit and think, what if, you know, maybe they could have held on if they hadn't scored that, uh, conceded that one just before half-time. Yeah, and it's and... funny, it's funny, it's just going back to that, where, when you mentioned uh, Ronaldinho sort of splicing right through the centre of the English sort of midfield and defence. Ronaldinho at that time was quite an unknown entity. We, You know, as football fans, we an 18-year-old, we, we were sort of a, and this is obviously before we were all darting around on the internet, you know, like looking at, I mean, I think YouTube must have been around, but we we weren't really using it as much as we do now. And Ronaldinho was a bit of a—he just sort of—we we knew he was good, but 
he was really showcasing what what he was the player he was going to become in this competition. And if you watch him in that game when he cuts through the middle, it was that that became his trademark, didn't it? That sort of amazing, amazing run through through the English defence, and he made it look so easy, but it was just so fluid. And then a little flick to Rivaldo, and like you said. I knew, everyone knew who was watching that game when it came to Rivaldo on his left foot. It was just going in. Everyone knew it. It was, you know. But um, it was just alluding to Ronaldinho because he he had quite a good competition, didn't he? He he wasn't quite in the spotlight, but he was showing flashes. Yeah, I mean, if I had to put them in order, the front three, I would personally say that Ronaldinho was third but then obviously he's coming up against Ronaldo and Rivaldo who were pretty unstoppable throughout that whole tournament and you know I, d- I did feel like he got off to a slightly slow start but that England game I think that really cemented his sort of World Cup legacy on its own and the funny thing about it is that he actually got sent off in that game. Um, oh did he? I don't remember that. Yeah, yeah he did it was against um Danny Mills, I believe. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. And yeah, so, you know, the fact that everyone forgets that he was sent off sort of shows just how special he was when he was on the pitch because that game, he was sensational. And you obviously spoke about how, you know, he wasn't really that known and he was at Paris Saint Germain. And obviously, if you were to say that now, then, you know, you'd know that the player is pretty well respected, but obviously at the time, Paris Saint-Germain weren't what they are now. Oh, absolutely so, not. Uh, I mean, Paris Saint-Germain was sort of, you know, struggling in some sense. I could be completely wrong, but I, I remember them that they weren't p- pushing for titles, you know, that they, they, they were they were languishing in sort of mid-table and stuff like that. So, yeah, they, they, they weren't quite the force that, well, certainly nowhere near the force they are today. But, um, yeah, Ronaldinho was known, but he wasn't, this world-class superstar he was he was on the verge you know yeah and you know as as you obviously said I think this World Cup definitely helped him push on in terms of you know the respect around his name and you know the fact that he obviously went on to do what he did with Barcelona and everyone like that I think this World Cup was sort of the springboard for his career yeah and so the, the question I've got for Monday Sportive listeners and Danny as well. So we'll just picture the scene. You've got Ronaldinho standing over the football. You've got the beautiful ponytail David Seaman just sort of edging off his line. Now, the question I've got for you, Danny, and Monday Sportive listeners, did he mean it? And what I mean by that is, Ronaldinho, did he mean it? Yeah, I mean... It it's kind of hard to imagine that he did, but it's you know he says that he meant it, so I think I'm going to take him for his word. And you know, as as I said in the book, you know, there's so much debate about it. It was either a piece of absolute brilliance or the biggest slice of luck ever. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I'll be honest with you, I I still to this day, when I watch it, I still can't comprehend how that ball got in the back of the net. It, it, it just, for me personally, you know, you watch football, it's, you know, it's it shapes, it passes, it's a, I don't understand how that ball ends up in the back of the net. 
yeah, it is just incredibly strange. And, you know, obviously I said at the start that, um, you know, the, the tournament sparked my love for football. I think, you know, that moment in itself just showed me how cruel it can be as well. Um, yeah, I, I was completely heartbroken, as many would have been. But, you know, it's just the physics of it. And it, it just seems so just completely like it shouldn't be able to happen. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like I said, it's it's, it's one of those... I hate watching that goal because it just brings back that that sort of, you know, lead balloon. It was just, you know, we're, all, we're, you know, we're in fever pitch. We're having a few beers and we're having a laugh and a joke. And, this, you know, we're worried about what's going to happen in the game. And we just watch this, this you know, situation occurred. And, we, we you know, at that time when it was live, we, we couldn't work out what had happened. It was like, what? How's that got? You know, it was unbelievable. And at the time, I, I remember thinking that was a fluke. He's mishit it, and it's it had to be a fluke. But um, obviously, Ronaldinho. I mean, to be fair, if I did that in the World Cup, I'm I'm claiming it. I'm saying no, I meant it. You got to, haven't you? Yeah, definitely. So, but um, so um, England crash out of World Cup to the eventual winners of the competition, which is Brazil. Um. Brazil are an interesting one, aren't they, in this World Cup? Because Ronaldo, um, Fenomeno, as he's known um, to the Brazilian Brazilian fans, um, he he's coming back from a you know I say nasty injury. There was sort of a lot of doubts whether he would actually play football again, wasn't there? Yeah, and I mean you know even if you look at within the World Cup, so obviously he you know scored so many goals and was brilliant throughout the World Cup but even he's a top, top scorer of eight wasn't he in the end yeah and you know even if you look at what he did within the World Cup um, there were signs at times that he was struggling with injury I mean everyone looks back at the funny haircut with the bit at the front yeah and the reasoning behind that was because people were beginning to talk about his injuries and um, you know they could see that he was struggling a bit. So he thought, if I do a stupid haircut, then people are going to talk that about that instead of talking about my injury. And it worked because oh. you know, to this day people were still, you know, I saw on the FIFA World Cup um, account that they were putting that haircut on current players. So you know <laughs> it certainly took the attention away from the injuries. But is that is that is that true? So that 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 was the plan behind it. So I have like a bit of an obscure haircut so people wouldn't sort of focus too much on you know his his knee basically yeah that that's what he said i if i'm correct it was to espn brazil um he he basically admitted you know i'm not proud of this haircut at all like it looks really silly but it did the job that it was meant to do when i had it because you know going into training and going into games i imagine you know on such a big stage it's pretty understandable that the last thing someone wants to have spoken about is their injuries because they want to get their mind right and they want to, you know, feel confident going into the game. They don't want to be worrying about what their knee is going yeah. to Yeah, and if, if you watch back, um, Monday Sportive listeners, if you look back at the goals that Ronaldo scores at this tournament, he, he doesn't seem to have that same sort of, I mean, he was electrifyingly fast, Ronaldo. He's known for it. I think one of his coaches said, you know, he could run the 100 metres at a pretty decent speed. You know, he was a... If you watch him at PSV and Barca, you, you know, he's 
extremely quick. He almost sort of glides across the pitch. And certainly in this World Cup, you, you, you was looking at a player who was, his mobility had sort of gone a little bit, but he still had that eye for goal, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, it was incredible. Some of the goals that he scored, like there was one that he sort of almost just poked it. Yeah, yeah. And it somehow found the bottom corner. It was just, you know, you shouldn't I, I, be able to do that with a football. But he I, just watched, I watched that goal and I thought to myself, only a Brazilian could make a toe punt look class, couldn't they? Because, it, it, I mean, it's a fantastic goal. But, you know, any of us lot punt it. It's, everyone's going to say, like, you know, you can't even play football. But it, it was a fantastic finish, wasn't it? It found the bottom corner as well. But a, a lot of his goals were those sort of poaching goals. We we sort of lost that Ronaldo who was sort of splitting defences and, you know, sort of taking on sort of, you know, three or four players in the box and then sort of burying it. We sort of, it was like a new Ronaldo, wasn't it? But he was still effective for the team. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it wasn't just in front of goal as well. You know, there was there were little signs of creativity and you could definitely see that, you know, people wanted to try and disrupt that and get to him. Um, you know, for example, Linker, the German defender, in the final, he hit him with a couple of big tackles and Ronaldo wasn't exactly best pleased. And, you know, he, he was a threat, you know, as as you say, you know, may, maybe physically he wasn't quite... 100% but he was still pretty much unstoppable which and obviously, yeah and, and and you mentioned yeah you mentioned that uh, obviously the final game so you, you we've got Brazil against Germany and it, it's obviously Brazil win the game 2-0 but it's, it's it's a real redemption for Ronaldo isn't it because 1998 he has this this episode before the game and doesn't quite fulfill you know what everyone wants to see in that particular final. France, France win quite easily against Brazil, but it, it, this is a real redemption for Ronaldo, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And you know there were so many doubts about him. And to be honest, I think it was a real statement from Brazil as well because there were a lot of doubts about them beforehand because uh, you know their captain got injured the day before the tournament started, mucking around in goal. Um, so they started the tournament with Gilberto Silva, who, off the top of my head, was either very new to the Brazilian setup or had never even had a single cap. Yeah, I think um, you're right. Yeah, yeah. And then Janino Paulista had just finished 18th in the Brazilian league. Mm. Um, so they were their midfield two at the start. So, you know, even in because I had looked at 442s like preview issue. Uh, yeah. And they were saying, like, on paper, they could be really good, but they could also be awful. And yeah. obviously, 20 years later, we know that they were fantastic throughout the whole tournament. And going back to Ronaldo, you know, the fact that because at 98, from what I understand, he was brilliant there as well until the final and obviously that episode and you know, again, loads of conspiracy theories. So the fact that he was able to go out in the final, having played well throughout the tournament and score the two goals that won Brazil the World Cup, you know, it was just, it was storytelling at its finest, I suppose. You know, script writers would 
love that sort of thing. The only thing they probably would have done is given him a hat trick instead. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I'm not being funny, Danny. We can't have it all, can you? Know, you win the World Cup, you score two goals. What, what more do you want, really? Uh, no, you are right. It, it really was a fairy tale, wasn't it, Danny? And um, I, I suspect you allude to the final quite a lot in your book, and, and of course uh, Ronaldo as well. Yeah. So um, I, basically, what I've done for the book is it's almost like match reports. For each one, and then there's okay. like moments of context. Yep. So, like for example, you know, with uh, so because the first goal, uh, Oliver Khan, and to be fair, and Haman, but I focused on Khan more. Yeah. Um, and I sort of you know showed the fact that his mistake sort of half led to the first goal, showed how cruel the tournament could be. Because Oliver Khan had a fantastic tournament, didn't he? Yeah, he was superb. He was the main reason that Germany got there in the first place. Some of the saves he made throughout the tournament were simply sensational. Yeah. And then with the second goal, you know, I really honed in on, you know, as you mentioned, the redemption story and 98 and the doubts and all that. So, yeah, what I did was, you know, as we spoke with Senegal, you know, I'd sort of do the match report with uh, the Senegalese game. And then when that goal went in, I spoke about, you know, how much it meant to Senegal and stuff like that. So when I say match reports, it, it is more than that because I sort of give context and, you know, before yeah, the yeah. game and at the end of the game. And then, you know, there's moments throughout the games where I really hone in on them and say why they were so special and so significant to the World Cup in general. Yeah, fantastic, and 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 like we said at the beginning beginning of uh, of the podcast, it was it was really was uh, a moment for Japan and South Korea to sort of announce themselves with the stadiums, the fans, the the way in which the you know the World Cup looked, and th- their manager Gus uh, Hiddink, you know the Dutch coach, he he. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he worked wonders with that South Korea team, didn't he? And, and I, I, for me, sort of looking back as well, I, I, that they were really like something to celebrate from that World Cup, weren't they? And uh, Gus Hiddink, didn't he get the keys to South Korea after this? Didn't they sort of sort of open up and give him sort of luxurious gifts and free flights or what have you? Yeah, he was an absolute hero there and understandably because, you know, obviously if you look at the individual players, they weren't going to be top four in the World Cup. Yeah, You know, the fact that they were so well drilled and obviously the players had a large role in that as well because they did show brilliant discipline and they were willing to give themselves up for the team and all that sort of thing. But on the flip side, you know, you have to have a manager who is very tactically astute to be able to get them to do what they did. And, you know, as we've alluded to already, you know, there were some decisions that helped them, but at the same time, you know, for a team who'd never got to the group, got out of the group stages to reach the semi-finals is an incredible achievement. No, it was fantastic. Now, obviously, I we know you're a West Ham supporter. That's correct, isn't it? Yeah. And and I, I'm a Queens Park Rangers supporter. Now, two London clubs. One player who played, I think, I think he played every game for England was Trevor Sinclair, wasn't it? Yeah. He um, so he was initially meant to be a reserve. Yeah. And then um, Danny Murphy got injured, so he came into the squad. And then Owen Hargreaves got injured against Argentina. Um, I can't remember if he played in the Sweden game, 
um, off the top of my head. But against Argentina, he um, he came on for Owen Hargreaves, who got injured quite early. Yeah. Uh, following a Maurizio Pochettino tackle. Um, and yeah, he just didn't look back. He was brilliant. And yeah. that, that left midfield position had actually been a real problem position. Because, yeah. Because yeah. um, Heskey was used on the left in one game and Skulls in the other before he came in. Blimey. So that's, that's, that, that, that's old uh, Sven Goran Eriksson at his very finest then. But it was, it was funny because Trevor Sinclair, for me, when I was growing up, uh, watching him play was just phenomenal. He, he came to QPR as a young player and he, he was this vibrant attacking winger, just whipping in balls for Les Ferdinand and, you know, rifling goals from the edge of the box. And, um, I, you know, when he, I don't know if you remember him going to West Ham or you've looked back on it, but, you know, it was for QPR supporters. It, when we sold him to West Ham, it was just, oh, it, was, it was awful. Absolutely awful. Yeah, I mean, he's got his own little uh, moment in our history because he's the one who played the the long ball that um, picked out De Canio for that iconic goal. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and, so, yeah. What a goal that was. Blimey. Yeah. De Canio. There we go. That that might be your next book, uh, a West Ham icon. But um, listen, Danny, it's been, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, having you on the podcast. Uh, and it's been a pleasure hearing about your new book. And it certainly looks fantastic. And I'm sure people reading it are going to a- absolutely enjoy it as well. Um, Danny's also got another book, uh, Bowling's Farewell. When that looks at uh, the history of, uh, is it the last game being played at the, the bowling ground? Is that right? Yeah. So that's all about the final game at Upton Park, sort of the history, uh, everything around the game from travelling to the game and sort of the emotions and um, obviously the action itself the ceremony after, the aftermath, uh, everything. I interviewed 31 people for that book because wow. really, obviously with that one, where it's about one day, mm-hmm. you want to get as many emotions into it as possible. So that's the way that I went about it. Fantastic. Like a, a real sort of keepsake for, for West Ham fans. Well, listen, Danny, it's been an absolute pleasure. Monday Sportive listeners look up Danny Lewis he's on Twitter he's uh, his book is available from today and I believe you've got some signed copies uh, knocking around as well Danny is that right yeah if anyone wants to um, get a signed copy you can DM me on Twitter so Danny Lewis underscore 95 and um, yeah I'll be happy to do that excellent thank you Danny and again thanks for coming on the show it's been an absolute pleasure Monday Sporting listeners, again, as the football season has come to a close, uh, we've got no doubt we're going to have many more guests coming on throughout the summer. So keep your eyes and ears peeled. Thank you very much for listening. Follow us on Twitter at at Monday Sportif LDN.